Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The level of lead in the blood of children is the topic of this edition of Radio Curious. Our guest is Dr. Martha E. Richmond, professor of chemistry and biochemistry and director of environmental science at Suffolk University in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Richmond's current work centers on lead poisoning in children and involves assessments of environmental regulation to effectively protect public health, including the effectiveness of regulations for air pollutants and protection of children against lead toxicity. Approximately 500,000 children in the United States between the ages of 1 and 5 suffer from lead poisoning as a result of lead in their blood above the level for which public health action is recommended. No safe lead level in children has been identified, and lead exposure can affect nearly every system in the body. Because lead exposure often occurs with no obvious symptoms, it frequently goes unrecognized. This results in short and long-term adverse consequences in the exposed child and to society in general. When Dr. Richmond and I visited by phone from her home near Boston, Massachusetts on October 19, 2014, she began with a description of the issues surrounding lead poisoning. Well, it's, it's complex. Um, lead uh, is a sort of, it poisons lots of things. Uh, it's a reproductive toxin. It's a kidney toxin. Um, it is a neurotoxin. Uh, it causes something called lead-induced colic. And this is really, I think, where the big modern concerns are right now, at least in many countries. Um, it's affects children differently because uh, since children's brains are not fully formed and the blood-brain barrier, which stops certain things from getting into the uh, cells in the brain, is not fully developed when they're born and really isn't until they're about six or seven years of age. Lead has the capacity to get into neurons in the child's brain much more readily. And when it does that, what can happen um, at very high concentrations is just it can cause fits, it can cause a lot of difficulties like that, but at lower concentrations, it leads to developmental delays that can be measured by a decrease in IQ. That is assuming that we can say IQ tests are a valid measure of intelligence. Um, it also leads to a number of behavioral problems. This includes Increases in impulsive behavior, attention deficit disorders, um, sort of general, uh, for want of a better term, sort of lack of governing capacities that children have if they've been poisoned with lead. And the tragedy about this is that it just simply doesn't stop at that point. So whatever happens to a young child who has been uh, exposed over a period of time to high concentrations of lead that damage continues for the rest of that child's life. Well, can we, can we talk about the exposure factor? 
How is a young child, or any person for that matter, exposed to lead poisoning? Primarily now, at least in this country, it's through paint chips, which sounds like it should have been wiped out long ago, but in older housing. And for people who live in cities where housing, a large amount of housing was built before the 1970s, uh, the paint that was used often contained lead. In fact, it almost universally contained lead. Now, this is not to say that every house built before that period of time has lead that is chipping off in the paint. But what happens is in housing that has been poorly maintained so that windows and window, the the, uh, sashes are not scraped and repainted and maintained well, when the window sashes go up and down, there's just a certain amount of dust that gets into the air. And that dust contains lead? That contains lead. The other place that is a problem, and um, this is also a predominantly but not exclusively an inner-city problem, is in um, lead because of the use of leaded gasoline many years ago. And what happens is that all of that lead that was emitted, particularly in very heavily trafficked areas, came out and ultimately deposited on the soil. So, for example, um, my home, which is an inner-city neighborhood, uh, I do a lot of testing for students I teach, and I always use my soil as the gold standard of high lead because I can dig up the soil, send it off to a testing laboratory, or do it within my institution. And either way, it comes off as just being incredibly leaded. So uh, children who live in housing like this or who play in playgrounds where the soil may contain lead are exposed that way. And they can bring, of course, they can bring the soil into the house um, those are probably the two big sources of exposure. A third, which is being phased out, um, but still in some cases is a problem, is that older housing often contains pipes that contain lead. And so when the water comes through the pipes, uh, there's always the possibility that there's a finite amount of lead that is that comes in with the water. And... Um, Gradually, gradually, these lines are being replaced, but uh, I don't know this for a fact, and it's actually something I really want to look into a little bit more, but my suspicion is that, like poorly maintained housing, this tends to show up more in uh, neighborhoods of a lower socioeconomic status, and I suspect the same thing is true with the plumbing that contains lead, so that the replacement has not been as uh, quick in such neighborhoods as it is in more affluent neighborhoods. You mentioned uh, older homes. Uh, how old is an older home? Well, if you live in Boston, it can go back two or three hundred years. But uh, what I'm really talking about is um, in communities such as ours, um, there's a there are a large number of houses. Uh, that were built before the 1970s. Um, And I think it was in the mid-1970s when leaded paint was finally outlawed in this country. So um, older, really, could be, well, I would say 1970s or before then. But predominantly we're talking about 
much older homes, which is the largest amount of housing stock actually in Boston. But you're also addressing this on a national and international scale. Mm-hmm. Right. I can't comment about many countries. Um, I know this was an issue that came up at a conference I was attending last spring, um, where a woman at the conference was from Paris, and she raised the question, I truly don't know what is being done in other countries. My suspicion is, though, that the problem is the same with the caveat that many countries earlier than this country realized the danger of lead, and they began to prohibit the use and paint um, earlier than we did in this country. So what are the symptoms of lead poisoning that people should look out for in their children and themselves? We'll start with children first. And the answer is that for a young child, unless that child has been exposed to a very large amount of lead, that child will be completely asymptomatic. Um, And if a child um, has been exposed to an amount of lead that leads that child to have seizures or anything of that sort, that child is seriously, seriously poisoned. Um, That prognosis is very bad. What we're looking at now is children who are completely asymptomatic as young children, but as a part of the screening process, um, they would show up with blood lead levels that are higher. Uh, The present CDC standard is... um, five micrograms per deciliter. Um, Now, I can't even tell you how tiny a microgram is, but, you know, it's about a tenth the size, a hundredth the size of a grain of salt. We're talking about very, very small amounts of uh, lead. Are you referencing a single exposure? It's a routine thing that's done in physical exams, and it's required, I believe, by... uh, the state of Massachusetts, in order for a child to attend school, that that child must have been tested for blood lead levels uh, so that they're attempting to screen every child. It's a standard like requiring children to have certain inoculations before they go to school. You could be exposed to something once, and right after that you could have a blood test done, and your blood test might show you've been exposed to that depending on how you metabolize it, obviously. Blood is a very good indicator of lead exposure. The issue is probably not one exposure. The issue is that over a continuing period of time, if a child has been exposed, uh, that's what you're worried about. Now, one blood test may not tell you that, but the blood test is the only way the people can be screened to know uh, whether or whether or not they have been exposed over a period of time. So basically what health officials are looking for is this as a marker so that they can then investigate and see whether or not it is likely that child has been exposed over a period of time so that that child is basically accumulating lead in his or her body. That's the issue of concern. Um, Blood is a marker, but the issue of concern is what, if that child is continuously exposed, has happened to that child's brain in the development process. Let's assume that a child is exposed and perhaps continually exposed. 
what happens to the brain? Uh, can it be treated? Is there a no. cure? No. Sadly, no. And therein lies the problem. Once that has accumulated in an, a child's developing brain, it has the effect of damaging neurons. And that means, despite the fact that the brain is, you know, there's a tremendous amount of plasticity in a, a young child's brain, the probability of damage to the brain is great. I would like to qualify that, too, because probably all of us grew up in a time when we were exposed to lead. And there are other factors, obviously mitigating factors, that determine what your life activities are going to be. It has to do with socioeconomic status, education, availability, a lot of other things. But if you take a child who has had this exposure and consider that often today, this is in underserved communities, that same child may not have had other kinds of advantages. The child may not have adequate nutrition. The child may not have adequate exposure to books. And we could go down a whole list of things. In effect, what this is doing is it's just adding one more factor into the probability that that child does not stand a very good chance in the future. I want to ask you about the effect of inadequate nutrition. But before we do that, I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Professor Martha Richmond, Professor of Chemistry and Biochemistry and the Director of the Environmental Science Program at Suffolk University. Our topic is lead poisoning in children. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Martha, the lack of adequate nutrition... I understand that increases the potential damage from a child who has been exposed to lead. Why? There are certain things that one can take in in their diet that, for want of a better word, would compete with lead. For example, lead can accumulate in the bone and it can accumulate in teeth. And you can actually see when children have been exposed to a fair amount of lead because you can analyze their deciduous teeth, their shed teeth and they'll show up with lead. Now, if a child does not have adequate nutrition, and that child, for whatever reason, doesn't take in enough calcium, doesn't take in enough vitamin D to help him or her bring in the calcium, that's just simply a factor that allows the lead to deposit much more readily. And then I think there are just other things that are probably more intangible factors. I mean, someone who is malnourished basically just lacks all of the factors that allow that person to combat disease, to be more vulnerable, for want of a better word. Martha Richmond, you talk about screening in Massachusetts as a prerequisite for children registering in school. I'd like you to tell us about the greater scope of these requirements. It is my understanding that children are screened as part of their entrance into school that they have to be screened for lead. The children's pediatricians will often do this apart from the screening. I know of one case, for example, of a child who just in a normal physical was screened for lead. She was about two or three at the time, and although her lead levels were not dangerously high, they had increased. Physicians suggested to the family that they should take a look at the house and see whether there was something happening that her lead levels would have increased. The question I have, and 
I have brought this up with people, and I truthfully have not been clear about this. But what happens if a child is screened and it is found that the lead level is above the present CDC 5 micrograms per deciliter? Then I assume this triggers some investigation into the living situation of the child. What happens then? I mean, clearly the child cannot be denied admission to school. It's simply a piece of information that's there. And the other thing, which is a very troubling thing to me, is people who are undocumented, whose children are starting school, and probably are terrified of losing their housing, of people who have been on long waiting lists for things. So what is the trigger that actually gets something to happen if a child shows up with this elevated level? has never been, in my mind, satisfactorily answered. Can you share with us uh, the short-term versus the long-term consequences of lead poisoning to health and safety of the individual and to society as a whole? Well, first of all, obviously for people who are severely hurt by this, their chances of success in life are diminished. And you add that up, that can be a fair number of people. And it it would be very difficult to actually document that in terms of dollars and cents, um, but it's just simply denying people a quality of life that other people have, which is pretty reprehensible. The other thing, which is an interesting study, and I am aware of the study. I have, in truth, not sat down and read all of the published papers about it, but it was an econometric study that was done looking at the issue of the decrease in crime rate. And this is a very sophisticated study, and and nobody ultimately has ever questioned the findings of the study. Of the study of a decrease in crime rate. That's right. Now, let's go back to what happens when children are lead poisoned. One of the things that happens is that they uh, have certain impulsive behaviors. They have an ability, decreased ability to focus. They have to some extent, depressed IQs. So you have all of these things that are sort of working against a child. Now, take that ahead, and I'll come back to a particular study that I've always found very compelling. This can really lead to the prediction that later on in life, for multiple, multiple reasons, this is a child whose judgment is impaired, who grows up, has impaired judgment, has a greater tendency to lead to impulsive action, and so on. This paper that I'm referring to started looking at decreases in certain kinds of violent crimes. The interesting finding, in very simple terms, was that when lead was removed from gasoline, when tetraethyl lead was no longer an additive to gasoline, and over a period of time, that meant that fewer and fewer cars were on the road that emitted lead-containing fumes, certain crimes went down pretty universally. That wasn't limited also to people of poor socioeconomic status. It was just simply a generalized finding. Um, The other thing, which I've always found to be a really interesting study, was a follow-up study of a group of children who had been identified with having slightly elevated lead levels in their bodies. And they were then followed up when they were 17 or 18 years of age And among the findings uh, were, number one, that there was a greater likelihood these children would have dropped out of school. And another one that I 
find rather compelling is that these were children who, as now teenagers, had more self-reported um, incidences of delinquency. And I'll add to that uh, just a very anecdotal thing that a colleague of mine told me about a woman who studies women who have been incarcerated, and she said that one of the women that she has worked with said that she felt that lead poisoning had been one of the things that influenced what had happened in her later life. Well, Martha Richmond, you mentioned earlier that there's no cure. What can be done if a person has uh, high levels of lead in his or her blood? Anything? Yes. Um, Pretty draconian. It's a process called chelation, and basically what happens is that an individual is injected with a compound that gets into the blood and grabs, for want of a better word, the lead that's in the blood and pulls it out. And, And I think because there is always an exchange, so if you have lead in the bone, it will undergo a certain amount of bone undergoes a certain amount of breakdown so the lead can be released back in the blood. So basically what you're doing is you're trying to get as much lead out of the body through this process as you can. I have a friend who had a young daughter who had elevated blood levels and she went through this as a young child and my friend tells me the story of taking her to the hospital to go through this and she said that she would just feel her just shaking all over when they got into the elevator because it's it's painful for a young child. It's very frightening. This is also done for adults, I might add, and I was focusing on children, but adults can also suffer from lead toxicity, and this process has been used on adults. It's not something you would want to go through. It's painful and frightening. Other than the chelation therapy, are there any other anecdotes? To my knowledge, no, but I'm not a clinician. Martha Richmond, why did you become involved in this topic of lead poisoning? Because I think that once lead was removed from gasoline, the larger public thought this was no longer an issue, and it was something that wasn't concerned. And albeit the funding is available to help people de-lead, it's a silent destroyer. And so it isn't something that's right there in everybody's faces to worry about. And people don't understand that this is still a big problem, particularly in underserved communities. That's why I became involved with it, because I see people who probably are suffering and don't even know it in some cases. And the underserved communities to which you refer are often those of undocumented uh, immigrants or people uh, who have lesser means, economic means, than others. Yes. Well, Martha Richmond, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, is there a eureka or an aha moment in your life that changed your life that you could share with us? When I got my degree in public health. (laughs) I don't want to call it a moment, but an entire two years of just, it was just the most magic thing I'd ever done. Um, I felt like I'd died and gone to research work, Kevin. It was where I could take science and I could take my interest in people and I could take my commitment to help things and see that they all came together. It was wonderful. And what would you like to do with the remainder of your 
one precious life? Wow. <laughs> Hard question to answer. Um, I, I would like to keep on doing things like this. I've become involved in some groups that are trying to change things, and that to me is really fascinating. I would like to, in very small ways, because I certainly think my contributions are very tiny to the larger picture of things, say, you know, we, we really should be out there to help each other and find productive ways to do it and use our talents to do it. And finally, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? Can I recommend two? Of course. Okay. Um, one of them, and uh, this, I think, was just an incredible book. I reviewed it, actually, for a service about a year and a half ago. It's called uh, Lead Wars and the Fate of America's Children. And it's written by two attorneys, I believe, um, Gerald uh, Markowitz and David Rosner. And it talks about um, a lot of the efforts to try to help this, including one unfortunate study that was funded uh, to the Kennedy Krieger Institute, which is part of Johns Hopkins or affiliated with Johns Hopkins approved by the IRB of Hopkins and funded by EPA. And it attempted to look at ways that less than complete deletting of houses might be acceptable. But unfortunately, the way that this was monitored was through children. And it really captures the frustrations that people have about trying to address this issue. Oh, the other is a somewhat different book, but it's a book I just absolutely loved um, called The Ghost Map um, by Stephen Johnson, and it talks about the cholera epidemic in uh, London in the 1850s and how John Snow actually traced the uh, what was happening and understood that it was from drinking contaminated water by just developing a map of the city of London and where the cholera had shown up and realizing that everyone who developed cholera had consumed water from this particular pump. And there's a wonderful pub you can go to in London, and you can actually see the pub, the pump rather, that was closed by John Snow's order in this area in London. So it's a wonderful historical thing you can do. It's sort of 19th century epidemiology. Well, Martha Richmond, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you. Dr. Martha E. Richmond is a professor of chemistry and biochemistry and director of environmental science at Suffolk University in Boston, Massachusetts. The book Martha Richmond recommends is Lead Wars, The Politics and Science and the Fate of America's Children by Gerald Markowitz and David Rosner. This program was recorded on October 19th, 2014. Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new editions published regularly. You may stream, download, 
Subscribe to our podcast service and share them as you wish. They're all free. We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541, and the address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. Christina Onestead and Yuko Kodama are the assistant producers. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.